The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Lee Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm finally getting my plot summary done. <laughs> the impetus to that uh, comment will soon be revealed to all. We, we, are, we are going to try to tackle The Big Sleep from 1946, as well as uh, talk a little bit about its 1978 remake here tonight. <laughs> try to try to have something new to say about it, and also just try to be able to unravel the plot, maybe to some small degree, for everybody. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just to let everybody know, I read the book this week, and watched both versions of the film. And I had never... Actually, I, I've read some some uh, Chandler before. This was one I had not read before this week. So um, I have been uh, inundated with uh, the big sleep plot this week. Uh, so every if my brain's a little fried, that's probably why. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a fucking conundrum, that film. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we are going to be looking at that, continuing our uh, crime film noir little series we're doing. I have a feeling it's going to probably spill over into April before we're done, because we definitely have a few other things we want to look at. Daniel, anything you've watched in the last uh, week or so you want to mention? Uh, yeah, actually, um, yesterday I finally got to see the Deadpool movie. Okay. Uh, my wife is a giant Deadpool fangirl. This movie made her very happy. Like it's, I mean, I, she's exactly the audience for it, you know? I, I figured as much, yeah. I, you know, I liked it quite, I, I, I think I liked it more than you did. I mean, I, okay. I don't think it's perfect, but I, I, I enjoyed it. It was certainly more, you know, it wasn't quite as puerile and made for 13-year-olds as I as I kind of anticipated it to be. I thought there was mm-hmm. a little bit of kind of a dramatic heft to it. Um, it's very much a, like, let's do a cool comic book movie version of this. You know, it plays it safe in a lot of ways that you wouldn't expect. That, you know, it's it's kind of like, how do you deal with this material? And the thing is, yeah. that, like, so many different writers have dealt with it over the years, and some versions of Deadpool are like super, super dark, and some versions are a lot more kind of cartoony. And this this treads the line; it's somewhere in the middle. And I thought it was pretty well done. I mean, I've kind of said on this podcast before that, like, increasingly with these kind of big event Hollywood pictures, I just don't give a shit anymore. Yeah, um, they're just you know. But but on that scale, this was much better than like a lot of the other kind of pablum crap that we see from yeah, the, and the when you videos, you know. And when you think about it, this isn't really a big event one. This is one that they dropped in what January or February was yeah, it? It was, in, it was in February. I mean, it was kind of one of those like I mean, this was this was the Ryan Reynolds wants to <laughs> wants to make this really bad, and the, you know you can tell there's a there's a real beating heart behind this. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely kind of big budget filmmaking. It's uh, you know, I'm not gonna say it's deep filmmaking. I think that there are some some ideas in it that are kind of interesting some fun villains, some fun action stuff. Uh, but mostly it's kind of about this character and about, you know, you know, kind of this situation he finds himself in and uh, the, these kind of relationships this guy has and uh, the way that he uses his sarcasm and humor to uh, deflect from the pain that he, he has even before the, uh, 
the kind of superhero transformation. Yeah. So um, I think it's I think it's um, it's funny. Like there there were kind of this bimodal distribution where people loving it and then people were kind of going, yeah, it's kind of whatever. Like it's kind of dumb. I I kind of feel like I'm somewhere in the middle. Like I feel like there's a lot that I like and a lot that I really wish it had done better. But I felt like it was a really effective piece of Hollywood entertainment in 2016. That's where that's where I sat with it as well. And I mean, like I said, they 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 dropped this on a month where traditionally this is where films go to die in, in the, in the, in the Hollywood calendar. But you know, you know, damn well sure. Deadpool two is going to be a fucking summer blockbuster. I mean, they're, they're just yeah. going to shove it right up. I, I hope that they, I hope that they learn their lesson and don't try to make it compete with like, you know, the, the really big ones, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. I think that part of the success of this is that it does kind of come out in time where you're not expecting it. So, um, you know, I think if you put it in like July, it's not gonna like it's not gonna be able to compete with like Star Wars Episode Eight or whatever. You know, like it's uh, it's this was this not a Fox production? This is, I believe this, it was. Yeah, I believe it was. You know what? I I could see them getting a little cocky, and I mean, I mean, it, it is still a Marvel. Uh, well, Marvel, I guess, sold the rights to Fox or whatever. Like Fox, like they have the X Men. Like I don't even want to think about yeah. like all the complicated. <laughs> I spent a week dealing with the plot of the big slate. Yeah, I am not okay. going to deal with who owns which characters in the X Men universe and the Dark Granted, the universe, granted, okay? granted. Uh, one or the other at a time, Lee. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'll, I'll do all the thinking on this one then. Um, it, it seems it seems to me like Fox they're definitely going to go for a summertime release with the second one because this was a big hit. They might very well want to put this up against something DC is putting out. I, I could see them doing that. I could definitely see them going after because honestly, the DC stuff is kind of fucking weak. Uh, I, I could see them wanting to compete with some of the DC stuff, compete with the Ar- other Marvel stuff. No, I mean they're they're not going to go up against something like the caliber of like the next Avengers film or Civil War or something like that. Or like but, Bat- Batman versus Superman 2 or something. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they might go after uh, they might go after uh, Batman versus Superman 2 or Aquaman or something like that, you know. So, uh, yeah. Um, the only thing I really watched, and I mentioned on Facebook, I actually even just posted a little uh, mini uh, thing about it on the uh, They Must Be Destroyed, destroyed On Site Facebook group. Um, Hold on, wait a minute. There's a Facebook group? Wait, how, how do people how do people join this? Like this sounds like a thing that people should absolutely yeah they should be a part of. Like they, they should uh, they should really go under Facebook. You know, everyone knows what Facebook is. Right, and they must be destroyed on site. And I, I I'm pretty sure that's about the only thing that's going to pop up on their search is our Facebook group. So uh, are there are there like cool conversations just happening in comments on the on this Facebook page, Lee? There have been like, known to be cool conversations happening. Are there like other podcasters like showing up randomly and just like starting conversations with us? Yeah, there's like some like really awesome podcasters that I uh, really respect and uh, listen to all the time, just showing up there and giving their opinions on stuff. It's it's amazing how, how, how uh, that happens. Yeah, that, that's astonishing. I can't, and this is completely unbidden conversation, now, isn't it? Yeah, there, there's no shilling here at all. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, the the new Daredevil uh, season. I binge watched that. Oh I have had basically no sleep in the last twenty four hours because I, I waited until it uh, appeared on my Netflix, which was four in the morning for me, Atlantic time, <laughs> and I basically binge watched for half the season and went to sleep for like two hours. Woke up and binge watched the rest of the season, <laughs> and I've been up since. <laughs> Nice. I thought didn't that just didn't that just show up today, Lee? And then uh yeah, it did. So yeah, um it did. Nice. Yeah. So, is it yeah. is I haven't I 
I need to sit down. I still haven't watched season one. I really need to like catch up on Daredevil. I guess. So, what did it did it live up to your expectations? Like it pretty much did. Um, I think the biggest criticism I have with it, and it's really the only criticism, honestly, because the writing I think is even far superior than the first season in the acting, the characters and everything has all been amped up quite a bit. It kind of peaks mid season and then sort of peters out after that. I mean, still the last half of the season, those episodes, I would stack them up against about just about anything on TV. But yeah, unlike the first season, which really did slow build to uh, sort of a climax right at the very end of the season. um, This one sort of peaks mid season it's a little unfortunate, but it's kind of expected because they sort of play a few uh, few cards in their hand that they probably should have kept until the very end of the season. But that being said, it was really good. I mean, you got, uh, what's his name, Jay Buenthal, Bluenthal, whatever the fuck his name is from Walking Dead as the Punisher. He does a really great job. Like this, uh, one of the major plot threads in this is his origin story throughout the entire season. It's just like the first season of Daredevil where I was complaining. He doesn't have the fucking costume yet. He doesn't get the costume to like the last episode. <laughs> uh, the only spoiler I'll give is that the Punisher really doesn't get his iconic skull on his chest until like the last episode or whatever. But it's it's really good. It's, it serves as a great origin story for him. And they don't puss out on them. If anything, this season is way more violent than the first season. Like, they just don't skimp on the ultra-violence at all. Um, But at the same time, the writing's really good. I think it's, you know what? I think it's probably pretty much equal to Jessica Jones as far as just really good writing, really smart writing. I just really enjoyed it. And I look forward to the third season. I just hope they sort of change things up a bit for the third season. Because there's a little bit of a you know, sort of resting on your laurels after the first season kind of thing going on here. They got to they gotta do something really special in the third season to keep the quality up, I think. But uh, it's definitely worth binging. I mean, fuck, it's fucking Daredevil. It's the best fucking superhero TV stuff that's going right now. So, you know, check it out. Awesome. Now, what I find uh, fascinating is that uh, we've now reached this point in kind of the superhero genre conversation where you get things like Deadpool. You know, mm-hmm. like the, and and like the 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 kind of the the Marvel TV, the Netflix Marvel shows, and the Agents of Shield and stuff, which uh, do seem to be able to deal with these kind of more complex and more interesting subject matters uh, than like kind of the you know all of the big Marvel movies uh, end with like some helicarrier or something falling from the sky. Yeah. Like that's how they. That's just how you have to end these movies. Is you know, there's a giant thing falling from the sky. So yeah, it's, it's nice to see like a, a, you know, particularly Jessica Jones, which you know I think we both really loved. Um, just yeah. it's so interesting to actually be able to get like different kinds of voices and different kinds of stories and not feel like it's uh, you know they're just being set in this kind of larger universe, which feels very comic book, you know, because you can kind of take a character and then like do your own spin on it, do your own take on it. Mm-hmm which is a topic I'm going to come back to as we talk about Philip Marlowe. So. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just say the thing I really like the best about these Marvel TV series is they both do the best possible thing for sort of uh, geek fandom, and they also avoid the worst possible thing for geek fandom, as far as I'm concerned. They avoid basically referencing everything else in the in the shared universe like to such a degree that it just gets fucking annoying. Like... In, in the Daredevil and the Jessica Jones series, they're not always fucking referencing the Avengers. They're not always, you know, talking about the bigger events in the actual cinematic universe. It's, it's very grounded. It's very self-contained. They make a couple hints here and there, but it's not overbearing. It's not taking over the conversation. But at the same time, the best thing they do 
is that for the real hardcore comic book geeks, they reference the actual comic books themselves. They bring up characters, obscure characters, plot lines, storyline points, things like that, that you might not even expect, but you do know and you love from the comic books, and they're brought into the actual story, and either in some small way or in some grand way. And they've been doing a really great job of doing that. Uh, very, very smartly done. And um, I like that. I, I really like that. Like, they, they make use of this rich backlog of stuff that they have from the comic books, and they make it make sense in the narrative of their actual show. So, Yeah, no, it's it's, it's pretty wonderful. They do some, some nice stuff. I, I, I like, uh, you know, it's so easy with these geek properties to basically just turn into, like, masturbation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they avoid that. Um, I've also heard nice things about the... Uh, the DC TV universe, the the Flash. Yeah, and the, the Flash. I actually watched the first season of the Flash, and I liked it. Um, yeah, I've heard some. I've heard. You know, it's it's interesting to see these kind of geek properties. Like, again, we've just kind of gotten to that point in the cultural conversation that we can actually kind of have a slightly more interesting and mature kind of look at some of this stuff. Um, so, I don't know. I'm way behind on all this stuff because I'm <laughs> I'm not a real nerd. You know. Yeah, so. I'm. I mean, I. I, I'm not a comic book geek either, but uh, I will say, like, as far as the DC stuff goes, uh, my my sole interest mostly is the animated series stuff, like the animated DC universe. And that just stems from the fact that I fell in love with the animated Batman series in the early 90s. Yeah. I mean, that stuck with me forever. Like, that is my Batman. And then to see all these uh, Batman movies that they've been doing and Justice League movies that they've been doing animated style, almost all of them have been really good, if not you know, if just solid, if not really awesome. And, um, yeah, like that's where the really great storytelling is in the DC stuff for the most part. I mean, the flash series is really good. I haven't watched arrow. I'm, I just don't care. Uh, but, um, <laughs> that one's got, um, two, uh, actors from Dr. Who in it. So I'm kind of like that. Uh, that one interests me just cause it's got John Barrowman and Alice Kingston. And I'm like, yeah, I need to see that at some point, you know, yeah. at least because I have enough, like, People I know like watching that for that specific reason, and so I see references to it. But yeah, yeah, one yeah. of these days we're gonna start a new podcast. It's gonna be like geek television properties. <laughs> we're gonna move, leave movies behind. No more exploitation films. It's all gonna be uh, episode well, I, by episode summaries of of the Flash. Well, well, I have said I I am kind of interested. I mean, if I ever find the time to like do some offshoot podcasts that are little little separate sister or brother podcasts, to they must be destroyed on site. But uh, yeah, and and actually, the, the DC animated films would actually be something I'd be interested in dis- discussing I'd, at some point. I'd be down for that. Yeah, yeah. do that. Hey, people on Facebook, let us know if you're interested in that. Yeah, please, we would yeah. love to. We would love to hear from you, but only through Facebook. Go only through Facebook. Only through Facebook. Well, yeah. I, I said I said before in a previous episode that that's probably the best way to get involved with us. I mean, because I know a lot of people just don't like sending emails and going through comment forums and bullshit. Facebook's just so much easier. So, yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty much we we are all we are all sons of Zuckerberg, sons and daughters of Zuckerberg these days. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I guess we can get right on to the film or films in question here. Uh, so we're going to be talking mainly about The Big Sleep from 1946. Can I help you, sir? Oh, yeah, I'm looking for a good mystery on something off the beaten track like the Maltese Falcon. Oh, that was a fascinating story. 
But here's one that has everything the Falcon had and more. It's Raymond Chandler's latest bestseller, The Big Sleep. What a picture that'll make. You mind if I look at it? Sometimes I wonder what strange fate brought me out of the storm to that house that stood alone in the shadows. As I probed into its mysteries, every clue told me a different story. But each had the same ending, murder. Every instinct warned me to beware that something more dangerous, more deadly than I'd ever known before was in that room. And suddenly... I like that. I'd like more. by the great Howard Hawks, uh, written by William Faulkner, uh, a person we've talked about before, Lee Brackett and Jules Firthman. They were all responsible for the screenplay. And of course, this is based on the Raymond Chandler novel, starring Humphrey Bogart, of course, as Philip Marlowe, Lauren Bacall as Vivian Rutledge, John Ridgely as Eddie Mars, Martha Vickers as Carmen Sternwood, Dorothy Malone as the Acme Bookshop uh, proprietress. Uh, Peggy Knudsen as Mona Mars. Regis Toomey as Chief Inspector Bernie Oles. Uh, Charles Waldron as General Sternwood. Charles D. Brown as Norris the Butler. Bob Steele as Lash Canino. Elijah Cook Jr. as Harry Jones. Love Elijah Cook Jr. Uh, and Louis Jean Haydet as uh, Joe Brody. And I'll let you try to unravel the plot here for us, Daniel. Good luck. <laughs> All right. So um, people have only been arguing about the plot of this movie for seventy years. Mm. Um, so uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Th- this is this is my, uh, you know, I telling Lee. I actually made flowcharts to try to dig this out and uh, went through um, a lot. So uh, I did read the novel and uh, watch both versions of the film. So we'll see. But uh, this is the summary of the 1946 version of The Big Sleep. Humphrey Bogart is Philip Marlowe. Marlowe is called to the Sternwood Mansion, home of General Sternwood, patriarch of two wild child daughters, Carmen Sternwood, the youngest, and Vivian Rutledge. Vivian Rutledge is Lauren Bacall. Yes, this will be relevant later. General Sternwood is being blackmailed by an unknown party over his youngest daughter's gambling debts and wants Marlowe to make it stop. Marlowe takes the case and quickly finds himself embroiled in an ever more confusing web of deceits and murders. Carmen owes her money to a man named Geiger, you see, who owns a bookshop that doesn't seem to carry many books, but has some untoward and likely illegal activity going on in the back. During a stakeout that night, Geiger is killed by an unknown assailant who flees. When Marlowe bursts in, he finds the lovely Carmen high as a kite and having exotic photographs taken in a Chinese-style set. Marlowe takes the girl back to the mansion, covering his tracks, and when he returns to Geiger's house, he finds the body has been mysteriously moved. Geiger's shop was owned by Joe Brody, and his home was owned by Eddie Mars. Brody is killed by Carol Lundgren, a quote-unquote business partner of Geiger, wink-wink, and Marlowe is told in no uncertain terms to close the case. 
Marlowe has an itch, though, not least because of his budding and natural interest in the stunning, sultry, and smoldering Vivian, and the interest is most certainly mutual. Eddie Mars has some kind of hold over Vivian, but is unable to be found himself. Later, a business associate of Mars named Harry Jones, who has a thing for a woman named Agnes, who has worked in Geiger's bookshop, approaches Marlowe with the offer of information for $200. Marlowe demurs at first, but when told that Jones can provide the location of Mars's wife, Mona, Marlowe pays the two bills for information. And this leads into an isolated auto shop where he is knocked unconscious by an assailant. He comes to, is confronted by Mona, who is also in the presence of Vivian. Mona storms off when informed by Marlowe of the crookedness of her husband, and after some sexy dialogue between Vivian and Marlowe, she cuts his ropes and helps him to kill Canino, who I can't fucking believe I haven't explained who he is yet because his plot summary is already too long, but fuck it. <laughs> the film ends with Marlowe triumphant. Mars revealed to be not only the blackmailer, but the killer of Sean Regan, who was a friend of the generals who happened to have gone missing a couple of weeks prior to the opening of the film. Marlowe advises Vivian to get psychiatric help for Carmen, and we get a happy ending knowing that Marlowe and Vivian are soon going to go do some serious hardcore fucking. <laughs> Everyone got that? Everyone clear? <laughs> well done. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's actually pretty well done. I, I must I must commend you, sir. <laughs> this this is a movie with. Uh, and it's pretty much famous for the plot, especially the 1946 version, being one of the most confusing, elaborate, <laughs> labyrinth fucking plots ever put in a film noir. And at the same time, it is lauded as an absolute fucking classic of the genre, despite how confusing it is, uh, mainly because of the performances, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and well, um, I'll just, I'll just, I mean, I'll quote. I actually read uh, in part of my preparation for this episode. I read um, Roger Ebert's Great Movies review of this, which mm-hmm. he wrote back in 1997. And one of the points he makes is that the confusion is the point. You know, yeah. like, like the whole thing is you're confused, the audience is confused, everyone in the movie is confused about what's going on, including Marlowe. The point isn't to to unravel and understand what's happening and what you know what's going on, but to kind of be um, taken along by the kind of mechanics of the thing. I would argue that particularly in this film version, and I tried to emphasize that in my plot summary, the whole point is it's Bogart and Bacall. Um, yeah. What's interesting here is that the uh, this is actually a a studio meddling version of this film. Um, there was a, a, a version that was not released uh, that was kind of made a year earlier which focused a lot more on the kind of plot mechanics and explained a lot more stuff. Bogart and Bacall had kind of become a kind of Hollywood power couple, it couple, and so they basically expanded on all that stuff. I've not seen the 1945 version. It is apparently available on the DVD, so if you do own the like a, the big DVD version of this, you can watch that version. And from what I understand, that version is actually uh, vastly inferior, despite kind of being more clear what's going on, because really the reason to watch this is for Bogart and Bacall. I gotta say, I agree with Ebert in, in this. This is an example of studio meddling being superior to the first product. I'll just go really quick over sort of the production stuff on this. This was first started in, in production in 1944. It was like October 10th, 1944 through January 12th, 1945 was the initial shoot for this. There was a version of this released for the troops overseas, but it was not released for the general public at that time. And one of the reasons this was done... Um, that they held it off from theatrical release in America was the war was winding down and the studios wanted to put every sort of uh, war themed film 
through the pipeline. They wanted to get them out there as quickly as possible because they sort of saw the writing was on the wall that America was not going to want to watch war films after the war was over, you know. They started doing some reshoots in January of 1946 and eventually was released in 1946 with a vastly different version in some respect. I guess seven of the 12 reels that this film is on was actually edited. Uh, they removed se- they removed a lot of uh, scenes from this and added a lot of new reshoots. And honestly, the difference between the films is only two minutes. There's, there's only yeah. two minutes difference. They decided to focus more on Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart's relationship, their flirtations. Which, of course, we're not only just on screen, we're actually in real life as well, because uh, the relationship eventually ended the marriage between uh, Bogart and his wife at the time. Uh, I got her name here somewhere. It's a weird goddamn name, too. Humphrey Bogart was, at the time, this was, I think, was his third wife at the time, even. Uh, Mayo uh, Mitho, I guess, is the way it's pronounced. Their their relationship basically ended uh, as these two were having an affair Kind of where I land on the, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the book version and kind of the differences between um, the the Marlowe's or pardon me Shamler's um, Big Sleep and then yeah. Bogart's or Hawks's whatever you Faulkner and Lee in brackets whatever you yeah. want to say the whole thing that you really kind of drives the story and drives the the viewing experience on the on the film version on the 46 version is Bogart and Bacall. I mean, yeah. you, you you kind of follow along with Bogart because he's so fucking charming and he's so he's so kind of good at what he does. I mean, he he looks he makes it look easy. <laughs> when, we, yeah. when we get to Mitchum, we're going to talk a little bit about that. But uh yeah. Bogart Bogart makes it look easy and Bacall is just absolutely stunning. I mean, she's like 20 years old or 21 years old at this point. She she was 20 and he was 46 at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh I, I will say that my my wife and I watched this together and uh Shana sorry my wife Shana says uh Lauren Bacall was like my very first crush like I I, I didn't know I was queer but I knew that there was something about Lauren Bacall uh, when yeah. she was a little girl and um basically it was a um <laughs> uh she and I were both like literally there were moments where you know we just have to go like let's just watch that again that's just Oh my god! Like, uh, particularly oh, oh the uh, scene she, where she's scratching her knee, where where she's oh in the god, yeah. like just I mean, you just see like a little moment like that. Um, Shannon was even pointing out like the, the way that she's sitting in the car next to him when he's mm-hmm. driving, and the way that she's like her body language and the way she's looking at him, and she's like, no, 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 that's the way a woman looks at a man when she's like, no, don't pay attention to the road. You yeah. need to be paying attention to me. And uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's mesmerizing, and it, and it's kind of like it it over like um. You don't care about how confusing everything is and how how much stuff is going on. I mean, it's it's kind of like look at all the action and all the blackmail and all the intrigue and all the shit we put stuff into this movie. But you're kind of falling along because like I'm just watching Bogey and Bacall. Like that's all I care about. Like yeah. watching this, you know. You want like, everything you, else is sideline. You know. You you don't necessarily pay attention to the plot details like their performances and their their basically just their their chemistry on screen is so good that it carries the entire movie and the audience is fixated on basically, I don't care necessarily what the plot is. I know they're in danger. I know they have to get through some shit and I just want to see them get through some, through some shit because these two are sexy and they make me want to fuck as well. Yeah. (laughs) Done. I mean, that's, that's, that's it. And I mean, some of this, some of this dialogue and I'm, I'm going to, some of the details of the story um, from the novel got got dropped. Some there's some stuff that's literally um, 
just they couldn't air it. They couldn't run it in in, in, in a film. The Hayes Code just wouldn't yeah. allow them, and there were certain elements that were just completely dropped. The dialogue in the film goes about as far as it can go. Um, there's a particular um, dialogue scene uh, involving a, a racehorse and uh, who can ride the longest, and it's uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, that's barely even a single entendre. You know, like that's uh, pretty 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 obvious what the fuck is going on in that in that dialogue scene. But um, also, I believe uh, there are elements of the dialogue between Bogey and Bacall that uh, actually are not even in the novel. Like like there are. Are, uh, some of the repartee is, uh-huh. is um, I believe, unique to the film because I didn't remember, you know, kind of reading it in the novel. Um, yeah. There is a, it does get a little bit more um, explicit in the novel um, in certain um, sequences. There's a little bit more, um, particular, um, one of my favorite scenes in the novel is um, during the scene when um, uh, Marlo is kind of trying to get Vivian, you know, he's asking, you know, uh, what does Mars have on you, like a bunch of times, and uh, that scene goes on a little bit longer and there's a lot more kind of interplay and you definitely get a lot more of a sense of these two or the, the chemistry between them. Uh, like in the dialogue, you get a lot more of that kind of conversation. And so in the moment when uh, he said, when she says, I'll scream, take me home, et cetera, it's, it's a lot more of a kind of shocking moment. Um, in neither film version does that moment really play the way it did in the novel yeah. um, because you just get a little bit more lead up time to it um, in the, in the book. Um, so that's, that's probably the one kind of big disappointment I had in the, in the film, in both film versions, is that that scene just seems a little truncated. Yeah, I hate, I always hate like comparing it too closely to the novel. I'm just like, that was such a great scene. And I know exactly why they can't put that in in 1946. But I was really surprised to see it wasn't even in, really in the 1978 version. Um, yeah. Um, shall I talk about kind of the differences between the film and the uh, novel a bit? Yeah. I'm definitely interested here. Like I did a little bit of like, just sort of uh, a small bit of reading on that. Like, like I, I understood definitely that mostly it's the Hayes code that cuts a lot out of the movie that just can't happen. And I mean, even then there was stuff cut out of the movie that just was not suitable at the time for on, on, on the screen. But yeah, the, the novel is definitely a lot more graphic, uh, yeah. definitely a lot more uh, lurid, I guess. Yeah. than what would be permissible on the screen at that time, right? Well, um, there, there's definitely that. I mean, one of the, there's some small details <laughs> hinted at when um, uh, in the in the novel, um, Geiger and uh, Carol Lundgren are explicitly. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a, there's actually some really homophobic language used in the novel. Yeah. Um, you know, some something like uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a man like that has no steel in him, or something like that. They, they he, he uses some some pretty explicitly homophobic stuff, um, which. It's 1939. I kind of forgive it, but I mean, it's definitely it's definitely present. Um, but they are yeah, yeah. they are explicitly gay, uh, which is not uh, not shown in the in the 46. Yeah, the movie. film never really um, in the film there gives you no film, connection at all. Business associates, you know, yeah, just kind of, oh, yeah. It's right. a guy like he's he's just really mad. Like, oh, he's yeah. just he's just like, man, I was I worked with this guy. Fuck you, you know. That's kind he's of just, the, uh, he's it. just a proto James Dean. He's really angry and he likes to shoot things. Yeah, that that's it. That's it. That's all you get. So that, that's that's one thing that they just couldn't show on screen. Um, uh, one of the other big details is that in the novel, Carmen Sternwood is uh, kind of explicitly making pornography. They don't actually. I mean, she's. She's not shown doing like hardcore or anything like that, but she's shown like it. She's actually nude when uh, Marlo finds her in the in the first scene, and um, in the later scene when uh, Carmen is in his apartment, uh, she's nude in his bed at that point. Um, mm-hmm. These are both details that are included in the seventy eight version. Yeah. 
Um, but obviously that that wasn't included in forty six. I mean, that was like explicitly like, no, 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 you can't do that. Chinese um, style photography, or whatever. Yeah, Chinese yeah. photography. Look at how scandalous our Chinese photography is. Um, <laughs> the um, uh, business behind the bookstore is uh, explicitly shown to be this is porn. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, in 1939, that would have been almost always connected with the mob. Personally, I don't have any issue with people making porn and, you yeah. know, doing that sort of thing, sleeping around. In fact, um, Carmen was one of my favorite characters. Like, once you kind of take her out of the fact that she's, like, clearly heroin addicted and clearly, like, doing some really awful things. Yeah. Um, I, I fell in love with Carmen kind of from the beginning because she's literally, like, flirting with Marlo. And, of course, who wouldn't flirt with Marlo? Mm-hmm. It's great. And who wouldn't but, uh, flirt with her with that fucking skirt she's wearing and those long oh legs? God, yeah, <laughs> no, that was that was definitely a you know. Um, uh, I'm surprised. Was, I'm surprised they allowed that on the film at that time. Like it, that skirt it, and those legs. As as it, I mean, you know, it's like it's it's not explicit, but it's right up on that line, man. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's it's right up there. It's uh, you know, it's surprising how much you could do and still not really show anything. You yeah, know? but uh, it is uh, it is interesting to like look at these. Um, Actresses. There's another actress I'm going to mention here in a second uh, in this regard, so uh, I'll just kind of leave that there. But um, the other big difference is the ending of the uh, the novel. Yeah. The film ends with basically uh, Mars did it. Mars was the bad guy the whole time. He killed everybody. There's a denouement. Um, and again, this denouement is included in the 78 version, um, but uh, where uh, Carmen wants to learn how to shoot. I mean, the, first of all, there's a scene where Marlo essentially explains to Vivian the plot. And once you kind of get that explanation, it's like, oh, things are a lot more clear about like what was actually happening the whole time. But then you get uh, Carmen goes down into a uh, the spot where uh, like this oil well where they were like the because in the in the book the Sternwood uh, family fortune is built on oil. Yeah. So there's like this oil field right next door, and there um, she wants to learn how to shoot. She tries to shoot him, but he's loaded her gun with blanks, and then yeah. uh, it turns out she killed Regan. And uh, that's kind of the whole plot got started because of that, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that's definitely changed from the uh, from the from the uh, novel, um, which I think really what this does is it just gives you the kind of happy ending between um, Vivian and Marlo. It's really just yeah. kind of like, and then they're going to go off together, and we just kind of change. Like we we end on the high point. We get a denouement that's like thirty seconds long. We don't need this extended sequence where you know we explain all the plot. Nobody cares. It's Bogey and McCall. They're together. Let them go do their thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I think like, the film version works, but it's definitely like once you have read the novel, it's kind of like, wait a minute, where where's the end? You know, <laughs> like you know. Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of sanitized. Um, am I to understand correctly that even the novel does not have an explanation for one of the murders? Apparently, yeah. The um the the car that goes off into the to the ditch to the to lake. Oh yeah, the chauffeur. Yeah, the yeah, chauffeur. yeah. Um, apparently Faulkner and Brackett, um, or one of the one of the writers sent Chandler a note. It was just like, wait, who killed this guy? Like who? And uh, Chen was like, I don't know who. I don't, <laughs> like <laughs> he, he didn't even know. It's just like he died. Like and um, yeah. I think uh, I think most people just kind of like based on the internal clues to say maybe he just killed himself. I think the biggest thing between the novel and the, the film is that in the novel you really get this kind of very clear sense of kind of the high and the low between um, Sternwood is uh, General Sternwood is this uh, kind of. Uh, rich guy. He's got, you know, he's a, he's a decent guy, but he's, he's mm. this kind of rich guy. I mean, I, um, I'll talk a little bit more in the, when we get to the 78 version about the kind of portrayals of, of Sternwood. You get a sense of, like, this great wealth and opulence, and then when you see this uh, drug-addicted, um, they don't, they never specify what drug, but I think it's clearly supposed to be heroin yeah. um, in, the, in the novel. Um, 
and in the the 46 version it's it's almost certainly heroin when you get to carmen in this skeezy ass like porn studio behind a bookstore mm-hmm. and she's doing this defeater drug habit you know she's got all these debts and these debts are clearly drug debts and all this sort of thing and you um you really get this sense of kind of like all the difference between this opulence and the seediness um is really really driven home and i think that the production on the on the 46 version on the on the um the hawks version i mean it's not that he you know, I, I'm not. I'm not saying it shouldn't have been done this way, but you really don't get a sense of you know just how ramshackle and and yeah. uh, and skeezy so much of this is. And I and I think that uh, even um, this is something I'll bring up uh, in terms of Bar- Bogart's performance. You know, Bogart really you know he sells the kind of charm and the suave and the you know that kind of stuff. But uh, the book Marlowe is not really Bogart in my head. I, uh-huh. I never, I never, I always think of the the Marlowe from the from the novels is much more. Um, nonchalant but like not cool you know he's he's uh he's kind of hard as nails but he's not he's not quipping because he's cool he's quipping because he's got no other option you know yeah you know and uh actually uh, my favorite version my favorite film Marlowe, right now i uh, i'm gonna watch the dick powell version at some point i haven't seen dick powell's Marlowe, but my favorite Marlowe is still elliot gould i actually like his Marlowe yeah. best. um <laughs> i think it's it's even though it's very different from the uh in a yeah. lot of ways, from the from the novel version, um, I think it's the the most uh, true to the spirit of the novel uh, of the novels. Although you got to also keep in mind that the long goodbye, which I read the long goodbye when we did that one, but the there's also a 14 year time span between the writing of those two novels, mm-hmm. and I think that it uh, Chandler definitely grew as a writer between the two. He learned how to streamline his plots for one thing, <laughs> and uh, he really he really um, was able to kind of find more of a sense of. Uh, how to uh, explore some of these ideas in, in, a, in a more kind of um, concrete way without, you know, kind of getting lost in the details. Um, um, it's also worth noting, and I, this is the last thing I'm going to say about the novel for now, that uh, uh, Chandler, he basically wrote his short stories and then cannibalized the short stories for the novel. So yeah, yeah. since the short stories are, um, I did not read the short stories that were uh, cannibalized for this novel. There were three of them. I thought about like, oh, maybe I'll go, look at those when I'm like, I'm done. I can't like, I'm done <laughs> yeah. for this. Your brain's <laughs> already yeah. I'm already done. Um, I'm not writing a thesis here, but uh, it, it would actually be fascinating to go through and look at the novel and the, the, uh, the short stories and see, because at some places, apparently there really was a literal cut and paste process. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason that like the things like, well, who killed the chauffeur? That's just a loose plot thread because he's literally like stitching two stories together. Yeah, and, he, and there's and he this element that doesn't fit. And it's just like, yeah. oh, and then there's, you know, so it's just there. It's like, I don't know who killed him, whoever. He killed himself. Look, just just go with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm all right with that. I think we've watched enough now in our uh, film noir series to know that mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily matter if all the ties are tied up in a film. It, yeah. It's not about that. It's not about that in the story. Um, well, that that experience, you know. Yeah, that, that's watching, you know, and that uh, that's that's for lesser movies to be so explicitly everything re- wrapped up in a neat little package, you know. Right. I mean, um, it, it does remind me a lot of Night Moves, you know, which yeah, we, you know, obviously, um, especially uh, one element that I forgot to mention in Night Moves when we talked about Night Moves was the, uh, the chess. Um, I don't think I mentioned that in our episode. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, that's right. I forgot to do that too. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah, the way that um, Harry Mosby, yeah, Harry Mosby, yeah, Harry Mosby, uh, yep, play, plays chess. 
Um, and uh, that, that's clearly a, a Philip Marlowe reference. I mean, that's clearly meant to yeah, book that because Marlowe plays chess. Um, I don't think he does in The Big Sleep. No, but he does in the he does in the remake. He does in the '78. Yeah, he does yeah. in the '78 version. Yeah. Um, 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 and you see, you see a very small amount of it in the book in the Big Sleep, but it's a, it's a, it's much more of a major part of uh, the later books. Long Goodbye has it in a few places. So. Yeah, and of course the uh, the irony from uh, Night Moves is that he's playing chess and studying moves and stuff, and he doesn't realize he's also a pawn on a bigger board being moved right. around, and he doesn't know it. One thing, striking thing I really love about the the forty six version is the photography on this and if I'm if I'm if I'm not mistaken it looks like everything's basically done on a set like a soundstage set like I don't think anything is actually shot like outside anywhere everything looks like a set to me it looks not in a bad way not in a bad way just no no it it looks fucking fantastic like the photography on this is great like when he's staking out the uh, house of uh, the the bookseller or whatever and it starts raining. That looks fucking great. I, I really yeah. love the way that looks. I really, of course, again, the performances, I love how Bogart just sort of, uh, he's tugging at his ear the entire time. He's just sort of weaving in and out of people, using his conversational skills to get stuff out of people that they don't want to necessarily give. It's it's just it's a really charming performance. I think that the reason that the novel works, despite the fact that the plot is way too convoluted and you can't follow it, mm-hmm. is because Marlowe's always a step ahead of you, the reader. He's always kind of explaining things to you just at the moment where you get confused and you're kind of like, yeah. oh, and you can kind of follow because you kind of trust Marlowe to kind of know what's going on and to be more clever than you. And so when you're like kind of enveloped in this big complicated plot and then Marlowe kind of like says, well, you thought it was this, you know, does saying to some other bright person, but Marlowe's just brighter. But he's not like he's not like a chess master like seeing ten moves ahead. He's still only a move ahead, so you still kinda get and um that's a neat trick. I mean um Chandler I mean probably the greatest thing that Chandler does in the novel is kind of keep you going along. Also I'll say the chapters in the novel are only like five or six pages long, most of them. And they mostly end with somebody coming in with a gun. So basically whenever Chandler didn't know what to do, he would just have somebody come in with a gun and try to shoot somebody. Yeah. Um, no uh, I gotta ask. Uh, in the novel, is it not true that basically Marlowe basically manipulates other people into shooting each other instead of him doing a lot of the shooting? That's an interesting question, and, and that's probably something that like Chandler scholars have have uh, you know yeah. long debates about. Because, because I know in 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 the actual movie, like they give like basically it, it is it is a star vehicle. It's a kind of a fan service kind of thing for Bogart. Mm-hmm. So they give him. I, I know I do know from reading some of the background stuff that he gets to shoot people that Marlowe basically did not shoot in the actual story. I'd have to go back through and look at it again and see. Um, he doesn't he doesn't shoot a lot of people. I mean, honestly, when the when the action scenes start happening, I'm kind of you know I'm I'm, I'm much more interested in the character and the no. kind of the story than like oh who shot who sort of thing. So I'd have to I'd have to go through and start diagramming that. Because I know, uh, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Uh, the, the, the ending Carino, is very different. The, the, the Carino the, character, the Canino character. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, no. That that scene is unique to the movie. Um, that yeah. that doesn't happen in the in the book. Um, uh, I don't think I don't think Marlo shoots anybody else in the movie. Yeah, because in, in the book, yeah, he, yeah, he basically manipulates everyone else into right. basically doing that for him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he, and really, what it is is like there there are evil people around me. There are people who have ill will i will be just clever enough to keep them from killing me today and then they'll kind of eventually turn on each other and it's it's yeah. not like 
again, it's not even like he's he's like playing chess ten moves ahead. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah. always one step ahead, which is always yeah. uh, kind of clever. I think one of the um, you know interesting bits about the, the film, you know, uh, where the book kind of relies on kind of the cleverness of the of the construction because the film has you know basically you cast Bogart and let him steal the show, and then mm-hmm. you can call and let them steal the show, and you make a classic, and you know it, it's sort of um, the the film especially the 46 version, probably the 45 version um, doesn't do this as much, but the 46 version, the, the theatrical release, you know, it's almost like you're getting through with the, the actual plot stuff as fast as you can. Yeah. Um, there, there's no sense of like caring about whether you're following this or not. The whole thing is just a delivery system for Bogey and Bacall to sit and make eyes at each other, which I'm, I think is great. <laughs> like, it's yeah. awesome. But there's no sense in which we're, we're supposed to like really care that much about like who's killing who for what reason, you know? So uh, I think that that's a kind of an interesting, um, they knew what they had basically. And they just pushed that, pushed that as far as they could. Um, Yeah, no, that's, that's totally true. I mean, um, I've seen both versions, the 45 version, there's stuff in there that is just like, there's characters and there's screen time for characters as is totally dropped from the 46 version. And Mm -hmm. I honestly got to say, it doesn't hurt it. The 46 version is a superior version. The, actually, the 45 version is kind of fucking boring. It really is. <laughs> like, Well, I, I'm not quite ready to move on to the 78 version, but uh, I think that... Um, you know what? I actually like the 78 version better than the 45 version. I'll give you that. I'll give it... Okay, I'll say that much. okay. fair enough, fair enough. Um, yeah. Um, can can I talk about one more character before we kind of because I, I feel like we're I, I don't know if we're wrapping up but I, I um, are we going to be talking about the uh, woman in the bookshop? Oh yes. <laughs> okay, because that's well, that's what I that's what I want to mention. I want to mi- mention that how fucking funny and actually well done this is. That wait, wait, which bookshop are you talking about? The first bookshop or the second, second bookshop? Second bookshop. I, I will mention the first bookshop as well. Just in the fact that okay, this film. Now, this this is both the ideal male fantasy in a way because uh, Bogart's Philip Marlowe is the ultimate ladies' man where every woman in this film who sees him wants to fuck him. Yeah. Like, just at a drop of a hat. But at the same time, at the same time, they don't treat... Well, it, at the very least, the women that they give more than two lines to. Right. They don't treat any of the women as just fucking useless nothings that are throwing their tits at them. Yeah, right. like all the all the principal female characters in this film are written really well, and Bogart's charm is in there. I think that's one of the biggest uh, draws of this film, honestly. Yeah. Like, it, like it, it does that male fantasy thing, but it doesn't do it ad nauseum to the point where you're like, "Oh, come on, fuck off." <laughs> well, well, I mean, the thing is, like, we've and uh, and I just want to I just want to name the actress here because I thought she, I mean, she has like eight lines, but she's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dorothy Malone, who yes. uh, is kind of the the uh, the the quote unquote the mousy girl in the in the bookshop, you know, who mousy um, to me. <laughs> well, not to me either, you know. Yeah. I, I, I like the bookish ones, you know. We're we're good, don't worry. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you uh, you look at that uh, actress, and you know, I, I went and I googled her. I'm like, oh my god, who is this woman? And she was a siren of her own. Like a few years later, she you know, like her her like. A Wikipedia page, you know, she's like a blonde bombshell and everything, and it's like mm, so she's she, one of the she's she one of the few still alive from this cast. Too. Yeah, that, that was uh, that was uh, made clear on her Wikipedia page. I think we, you and I, have similar process in terms of like, oh, who is that? I need to go look yeah. her up. You know, what else did she do? That's awesome. No, she she's amazing in the film, and I mean, you know, again, I was sitting and watching it with Shana, 
And she's like, so those two, like, there's literally like a, a fade to black halfway through, and then it's night. And it's like, so basically these two fucked in the, in, like, yeah. in the interim, right? Like, that's what happened. Um, and, you know, they're just not talking about it. Like, I mean, it's very, very clear that there's yeah, yeah, yeah. a huge sexual tension. And, I mean, again, for 46, this is about as explicit as they can get. Like, I mean, you know, this is, you know, audiences at the time would have seen this as, as very, very explicit. I mean, today we kind of like look at it and go yawn, but it's almost like because they couldn't like just do it, it's all subtext. And I mean, just, it, you can cut it with a knife. And I was just, I was so uh, mesmerized with, with that character. Um, you know, what I love, she's, she's the one who aggressively basically comes on to him. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, like it's. Uh, I mean, you know, like there are films today that could learn lessons about female sexual agency. You know, yeah. in terms of the way that they get treated. Um, one of my, I you touched on this, and I and I don't want to push too hard on this, although I I might. We'll see if I get ranting or not. But um, uh, Bogart casts such a such a shadow over culture to the degree that today we don't even think about you know how much of of like what we think of is this is what it is to be a man is um influenced by these kinds of characters but yeah. like let's talk about let's talk about the fucking fedora as like what does the fedora mean in today's culture it's kind of reactionary misogynist douchebags you know talking about how they can't get laid <laughs> and pretend of you know some ideological difference um yeah. which it is but like there's there's a cycle here i mean i i don't want to you know dig into that too hard you know uh, not here but you think about how like you know, all these guys, they just want to fucking be Marlowe. Mm-hmm. Or they want to be, they want to be Bogart. It's not even Marlowe. They want to be Bogart. Yeah. They yeah, want to yeah. be Bogart. And uh, they've learned the wrong lessons, you know. Uh, I love this era. One of the reasons I love the noir era and one of the reasons that I love the um, the film Fatals is because this is, these are really amazing roles for women at a time that, you know, you just didn't see that many of them. I mean, you look yeah. at, like, the Westerns of the time. You look at... Um, uh, you know the romances of the time, and they're they're weak. They're not they're not given anything to do. Here you've got four or five like really nice meaty roles for women, and I think that's remarkable, especially considering how much um, Chandler was a pretty inveterate sexist in terms of his writing of these characters. Yeah. Um, and the way they're uh, described is in very uncertain, very certain like misogynist ways. You know, so yeah, I'm I'm, I'm kind of thinking that a lot of it probably just stems right back to Lee Brackett. Like she probably really inputted a lot into this and. Some of these noir films, because they are films that, unlike westerns and stuff of the period, were definitely sort of skirting more edgy material. You had to have smarter writers on them to make them any good. Yeah, um, I mean, this is. The, I mean, even even if I mean, you you heard my plot summary. Like, I mean, you yeah. know, taking this novel and adapting it, even though there's not a ton of difference. I mean, let, let's be on like mm-hmm. it's it's a fairly straight adaptation. It's actually a straighter adaptation than I thought it was going to be because I read the novel and I'm like, like, how do you do this nude scene? How do you do this this yeah. sequence? But it ends up being a fairly effectively done. They just trim stuff and kind of take out they they take out a lot of the shoe leather a lot of the um way that marlowe kind of finds stuff out and he just kind of walks into rooms and suddenly like oh and there, there's this new scene but the spine of the story is basically the same i mean it, yeah. it doesn't change a whole lot so um that that is uh it is worth noting i mean it's a really admirable um you know i'm a i'm a big fan of faulkner i mean i'm from the american south and you know we kind of we there's a uh the sound of the fury i read uh, for the first time uh, when I was in uh, college, 
And um, that's just one of those classics of, um, you know, kind of Southern Gothic literature. It's one of yeah. those like, early postmodern classics. And uh, I don't think it's ever been adapted for film, but it's uh, it's pretty phenomenal. So, yeah, I don't think it has, has it? No. I'll go into a little bit of uh, trivia notes for this one. Didn't get a lot of box office information on this. Apparently made three, $3 million in rentals. Who knows what it made initially when it was around. Um, I don't, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it did fairly well. I mean, you, you had your two principal sort of stars at this point. Uh, well, you, you got to think, like, as many films like this that were made later, you know, this this had to be successful, you know, for, for them to keep remaking this. You know, Yeah, yeah. And th- and this was the uh, second of four films actually made by this uh, couple of Bogart and McCall. Um, and then Bogart's uh, is interesting note here, like Bogart's uh, day or not Bogart, McCall's debut was to have and have not from forty four. And uh, interesting, also had something to do with uh, the release schedule of this as well, because at the time her uh, her second film, which was uh, Confidential Agent, I believe it was. Did not do very well. Her performances were uh, basically <laughs> just just totally shredded in in the in the critique uh, in the print. And so basically, this was sort of a almost a career saving performance for her in this film. People were kind of kind of leery of banking on her. Um, she she had, apparently she had a good agent though, got her back into this one. Um, but yeah, they uh, they did to have to have not. They also did uh, Key Largo and. Dark Passage as well together, and uh, they were married right up till uh, Bogart's death, and I think it was like fifty-seven or something like that from uh, esophageal cancer, I believe it was. He died pretty early, uh, but man, he he looked really old in some of his later roles. I mean, he's forty-six in this, yeah. and he looks a slight bit older. I think uh, I think Marlowe's supposed to be only like early thirties in the book. I think Marlo Marlo changes switches ages a bit. Between book from book, um, despite the fact that they're all like nominally the same character, he ranges from like thirty-two to thirty-eight. I think he's supposed to be thirty-eight at the time of the Big Sleep, um, which is the novel was written in thirty-nine, which would have mean you know he's supposed to be a soldier or kind of ex-soldier, mm-hmm. and yet he would have been slightly. I mean, basically, he's like I think they're supposed to imply like he like lied about his age and signed up uh, for World War One, you know, okay, that sort yeah. of thing. So, so he's supposed to be one of those guys. A uh, yeah, I, I think we'll dig into this a little bit more when we get to the Mitchum version. Um, yeah, yeah, because, uh, <laughs> definitely. They, um, things, got, things got a lot more fuzzy in the in the in the '78 version. Let's just yeah. put it that way. Uh, this was actually the first film that uh, started the long collaboration between Lee Brackett and Howard Hawks, um, right up till Hawks' death in '77. You know, Hawks is known for you know the kind of rapid rapid cut, rapid fire dialogue, the the, mm-hmm. the kind of clever quipping and all that sort of thing. But you got to think, like that's not just Hawks; that's Brackett. I'm sorry. I mean, I know we have like director blowjobs on as film nerds. Like we just, yeah. you know, we sit, we get on our knees and, and get the sloppy seconds from the directors. But like, you gotta fucking respect the writers, and yeah, particularly yeah. a female writer is just not just did not get the the respect in that time period. You know, and you know, I hate to kind of put it that bluntly, but you know, Lee Brackett was a fucking genius, and mm. uh, she she does not get nearly as much credit. So I talked about this in the long goodbye. I'm going to talk about it here in the big sleep. Yeah, I, let's do all the Lee Brackett Howard Hawks movies, and I will say this in every single one because I'm down for that. Okay, we can do that. I mean, you know, I don't see this podcast ending anytime in the foreseeable future, so we definitely have plenty of time to cover every Lee Brackett Howard Hawks film at some point. Sometime in 2025, we'll get to the last. Yeah, one. 
<laughs> and I, I don't think uh, anyone who listens to this will have any problem with that at this point. I think they, I think they, I think they're in for the long haul here. Um, <laughs> let's see here. Also, uh, apparently, uh, Raymond Chandler claimed that Martha Vickers gave such an intense performance that a lot of her stuff was just cut out so that it wouldn't overshadow Lauren Bacall's performance. Apparently, I, I, I believe that. I buy I that. Mean, yeah, she plays she plays Carmen. Um, just for the for the audience yeah. who didn't. Uh, Sit and stare at the cast list as long as I think. You would. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, no. Vickers is Vickers is astonishing in the film, and I think mm-hmm. she's. Uh, I mean, it really is like it's just siren after siren after siren. Yeah. Thing, you know, and, and um, you know, there, there's not. I mean, I don't think there's a weak performance in the bunch. No. Um, but like but she the... she's really mesmerizing, um, and and I yeah. can. It, it, as good as Bacall was, I can understand how like there might have been a fear that like you know oh. And Vickers is good enough just to compare to Bacall, to stand next to Bacall yeah. and be noticeable. She has to be pretty fucking astonishing, you know? Yeah, even even the minor characters, like even the ones that have like well, only one or two lines, they all make an impression. Like uh, like I said, like the blonde, uh, the blonde in the other bookstore before he goes across the street. Or yeah. no, the library, the library blonde. Yeah, the library yeah, blonde. yeah, yeah. And then, of course, then there's actually the, uh, the woman, uh, Angie's, I guess, in the... Uh, bookstore like uh, uh geiger's agnes bookstore? agnes, agnes, yep. agnes yeah who, who is who has a good scene where uh marlo's talking to her and her uh uh associate perhaps lover who who were trying to you know basically muscle in on um on on uh geiger or whatever yeah yep. on his uh bookstore after he died um even she's like all these fucking men i shack up with are all fucking losers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I will say as long as because uh, the character Harry Jones, um, the, the the small man who gets uh, poisoned. Um, yeah, Elijah Cook Jr., who's awesome. Yeah, uh, he is uh, actually apparently uh, he he has a he has a thing for Agnes, and that's kind of why mm-hmm. he's a lot of why he's doing what he's doing, which I think is great. One thing again, and I, and uh, the book makes a you know the book makes it clear that Marlowe has a deep respect for Harry in a way that I think gets lost a little bit in, in both versions of the film. Yeah. I think actually I think the Mitchum version does it a little bit better, really like kind of mm-hmm. sells um, that a little bit better. But uh, you know he's described as being like five foot two or something, which yeah. means something important in a in in the in the you know Chandler's universe. You know if you're five foot two, you're a shrimpy small man, and you're not expected to be anything of any significance Chandler through Marlowe kind of makes it clear that this guy really like he he's a, he's an upright and, and stand-up guy yeah. and um it, you know when he does die in the book it, it's treated as a it's, it's tragic in a way that I think the uh the movie drops the ball just a little bit on that I, I mean I, I really I think the movie is brilliant but I do want to just kind of highlight just the small moments that I think um got, got lost in the translation just a little bit and that's one of them where I think um Harry comes across as a little bit like, oh, and that's another guy who just died. Sorry, whoops, that's yeah. bad. Yeah, well, too bad. Wah, wah, you know. Um, <laughs> All right, uh, let's just move on. Talk a little bit about the uh, 1978 version here. This is Do we the, have uh, to really. <laughs> yeah, oh, come on now. Uh, the, the the Big Sleep 1978 version. Uh, this was actually written directed by Michael Winner, who's probably best known for Death Wish and not a lot else, honestly. Mm-hmm. He was a Thatcher supporter. That was the one big thing that I that I caught up on when I was uh, reading his Wikipedia entry, and I went, oh, "Well, I well. buy that completely based on the ending." And I'm going to get to that in a moment. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this one has uh, Robert Mitchum as Philip Marlowe, and this is actually the second portrayal. Like uh, it was uh, "Farewell, My Lovely" before 
a couple of years earlier that he uh, started. And this was the period that Robert Mitchum was kind of slowing down in his career where he was uh, getting to the point where he's going to start phoning shit in, basically. He did one really great crime film in this period, uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is a film I really love. I think it's one I actually we might cover in this series. But he did this. He did The Yakuza, which is a, another film that I really like. It's kind of a flawed film, but I like it a lot. Mitchum kind of sleeps through that one. And I'd argue he definitely kind of sleeps through this film to a certain degree. But this film, it follows the sort of uh, more seedy elements of the original story much closer than the uh, 46 version does, right? Yeah. Uh, no, this one is uh, a lot more... Um, for one thing, the uh, the film uh, incorporates the uh, voiceover narration. Yeah, um, that voiceover narration is taken directly from the book. It's uh, you know, it's a uh, you get a sense of uh, Chandler's language um, mm-hmm. a lot more um, in the uh, Bitchum version, and it does uh, because it's you know thirty years later they're allowed to do um, the uh, gay relationship is is portrayed in the in the film the, mm-hmm. uh, the nudity um, the nude scenes are portrayed. Candy Clark, <laughs> Candy, Candy Clark, who yeah. okay can can I just can can we just uh, I'm just gonna say. Candy Clark is on Mars in this movie. Yeah, um, now she, she does it over a little bit over the top. Yeah. I, I'm getting I'm, well, and, and here's where because um, I was looking in and I'm like, she's also uh, Mary Mary Joe in the Man Who Fought Earth, mm-hmm. um, and she's brilliant in that. Like, like yeah. I so so uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna make a a kind of blanket statement just from seeing this film once. Michael Winter has no ability to direct actors, um, and by this I mean. Every actor in this film is acting in their own movie. Yeah, they yeah, do yeah. not fit together at all. You know, uh, I think uh, some actors come across. I actually think Joan Collins is uh, one of my favorite things in this movie. Is she's she she's actually she should have <laughs> she should have been Vivian. Yeah, she should have been Vivian because the person who plays Vivian in this one is like there's no chemistry at all between her well, and Marlowe. Well, I so so I'm gonna I'm gonna defend. So I'm just gonna start talking about this. I'm gonna defend it slightly in the sense that like once you're like okay. We're trying to compete with Bogart and Bacall. We got to go in a completely different direction, or else, yeah. you know. I get that they were trying to kind of update it to the seventies, and she's supposed to be kind of like late seventies hippie, like kind of post hippie, wild child kind of kind of woman, and um, that maybe like downplaying the sexual tension and downplaying that kind of element of it. I get why that might have been a kind of an appealing direction to go to kind of play it as a little bit more kind of an ambiguous, kind of mysterious character. She's just—I mean, I don't even want to say she's bad. She's just not memorable at all. Like she just no, she just doesn't like I mean, work I, in the film. I don't know? think anyone's necessarily bad in this, but I mean, really, like you said, it like the actors are all kind of doing their own thing. So that's why you see like Robert Mitchum, Joan Collins, and like Oliver Reed really sort of shine because they're just basically doing whatever the fuck they want and and doing it really well. I, I, I think, think Mitchum sleep, sleepwalks through this. I, I don't like. I, I think I, he looks bored to me. I'm just. I, I mean, I hate to. I mean, I. I was looking forward to this. I was. I was actually looking forward to this more than the Bogart version because I'm like, yeah, Bogart's going to do Bogart and he's going to be brilliant. This I'm like Mitchum. Like seeing Mitchum as 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 Marlowe, like that's an interesting decision because um, I've not seen Farewell, My Lovely. Uh, I I did. I was you know. I, I just I thought he I thought he was sleepwalking. I thought I, I was bored watching him. Well, here, here's the biggest problem I have with, uh, with him, and I think this is something, this is like probably one of the major criticisms you see in this film, is that he's way too old for the role, even though he, he's 60 at this point. Right. And although he doesn't look 60, I mean, he, he looks, you know, 
fifty, maybe. But <laughs> he looks sixty. He he's he uh, he looks tired. He, I, know. I don't know. But I, mean, I think when I think Mitchum, I think Night of the Hunter, though, right? So I'm yeah, well, like you, that's all. And this is twenty years after Night of the Hunter. You you can make the argument that the less jolly Mitchum of the early days would have been a way better Marlowe yeah. uh, than you're, you're seeing here, definitely. And he's way too old for it. Uh, it's kind of weird that the story is set in England instead. Like it just kind of takes you right out of the story to a certain I, degree. I, I think I think Michael Winter just didn't want to just didn't want to travel to Los Angeles. Yeah, so, like really? that, that that feels like that's the only reason that happened. He's like, yeah, we'll just shoot in my backyard. And like, it, the whole thing just feels lazy to me. It feels like a made-for-TV movie. Like it, yeah, doesn't, it does, doesn't it? it like it, nothing pops up on, off the screen. Like it, it just it, feels so bland. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sorry. Like, I hate because I watched the the 46 version and then I watched this like the next day, and I was like, I am just not engaged at all. And I'm like, yeah. have I just spent too much time with this story? But I no, like there there really are just disastrous failures in this film. Yeah, and here's just completely lose my ability to give a shit about it. Yeah, um, and here's my here's my biggest problem with Marlowe as a character in this. Um, mm-hmm. and this goes back to the Long Goodbye. And this is where I'll make the comparison. In The Long Goodbye, Marlowe is a character who is out of time. He is mm-hmm. a 1930s detective stuck in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And what makes that work, though, is that the fucking film knows it and it plays off it. In this film, it does not know it. It does not play off it. It just plays it straight. And Marlowe in the 1970s playing it straight this way and the rest of the film playing it straight around him just does not work at all. It's just it it I don't buy it. I don't fucking buy it at all. It's so here's what I actually I I, I agree with you, but I'm gonna come at it from a different direction. Like okay. like we're, we're kind of we're gonna say the same thing but kind of in different ways. Noir is great. We all love noir. Mm-hmm. We're film nerds. Noir was a very particular time and place in cinema, you know? Yeah. And uh it ended at a certain point and then suddenly like it becomes you just start parroting it. You see all these like you know, comedy versions, you know, dead men wear plaid and, you know, all yeah, this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. I mean, like, um, and fairly early on, I mean, like, noir just kind of, even, I think even The Big Sleep has certain elements that feel overtly comedic, like the, mm-hmm. uh, the two guns underneath the, uh, the, the, you know, I just, I saw that and I thought that just feels like a comedy moment. Like, I have so many guns in my life that I have, like, two guns just, like, I you know, under a trigger underneath at all times. So, even by 46, we're already starting to like deconstruct the tropes of yeah. the, the private eye. In fact, Marlowe as a character, as written by uh, Chandler, is in some ways a deconstruction of the tropes of Sam Spade. So the fact mm-hmm. that Sam Spade and Marlowe are both played by Humphrey Bogart, and he basically gives the same performance twice, <laughs> is kind of a fundamental issue with Bogart's performance, but yeah. he carries it off because he's Bogart. So by 78, like the idea of like doing the big sleep you're almost do, you're you're doing this thing that's fundamentally atavistic. You're doing this thing that's fundamentally this old fashioned kind of thing, but they don't set it. Period. They don't set it as if it's in 1939 or 1946. Mm-hmm. They set it current day, but then they make him really old to make him seem like he's super old fashioned. But then because he's the hero of your film, and we're supposed to kind of like this guy, then the whole film gets shaped around this idea yeah. that he's just this like like that these reactionary attitudes that this guy has that are set in 1939 are kind of the right and proper things that we're supposed to believe. Whereas I think Altman's Marlowe or Gould's Marlowe is a much more, he's a man out of time, but he's uh, much more detached from his circumstances. Like 
he's and this is this is where I really respond to Gould's performance is that he's got the uh, the beautiful girls doing yoga across the way, you know, and he's um, you know he's aware of it, he knows what it is, he's comfortable with it, but he doesn't feel the need to kind of get involved, he doesn't feel the need to like yeah. kind of place his own like values on it. It's just like I do my thing, they do their thing, we're good. Whereas I think Mitchum's Marlowe would have had something snide to say about it. You know, yeah, yeah, and and possibly even Chandler's Marlowe. In in this, you know, um, one of the things that Marlowe is a character. One of the reasons that I think we've seen so many actors play it, and the reason he works on the page so well, is because he's a bit of an enigma. We don't really get a sense of like we kind of get his background. We kind of know who he is, but he's known through his actions. Yeah. And so actors get to bring their own distinctive personalities to these to this role in the way that like Mitchum plays him as this uh, kind of atavism, as this kind of conservative character, as this kind of judgmental towards the uh, the Carmen character. And yeah. like, you know, well, she's just being a fucking slut. I mean, that's kind of the attitude <laughs> he gives her. Whereas Bogart is kind of like, hey, nice piece of ass. I'd like to have that. But hey, you know, she's a little young for me. Like you, you really get a sense of, it's the same yeah, dialogue. It's performed yeah. different ways. You know? Mitchum, um, Mitchum judges the two daughters, and yeah. then when he makes his judgments on them, he basically is, that that is what sort of spirits him to I need to I need to defend their uh, defend this uh, fake image of them for for uh, General Sternwood or whatever you know like yeah, for, make him, for for Jimmy Stewart who yeah for Jimmy Stewart. As film fans, how can we not love Jimmy Stewart? But I fucking hate him in this movie. Yeah, I he's fucking terrible. hate him in this movie. Isn't he? He's terrible. He's miscast, first yep. of all. And he's just terrible. He's just yep. like in the, the film, so the one thing that, that the one thing that I really wish had been in um the forty six version is the kind of uh, monologue at the end, this kind of bit where he's kind of talking about the big sleep. And it uh, kind of explains the title and gives you that kind of a sense of, you know, the, the morass that we're all kind of steeped in. The, the novel is very ambiguous about kind of what the meaning of that is about like, and, and I think you can read it in a couple of different ways. Like is um, Chandler trying to say, we're all kind of trapped in this morass of kind of this cesspool of thing, but that's what real life is made of and we should embrace that. Or is he trying to say like we're these kind of dirty people and like these rich people kind of get to stand above it and they're like stinking of our shoes, rubbing the shit off their shoes into our place or you know, like there there really is this kind of sense of this questioning that there is this ambiguity to to kind of Chandler's version, the seventy eight version, the Mitchum version. It's pretty fucking clear, and this comes through Mitchum's performance and through um, the uh, the shooting of it and everything that like really what he's saying is like this nice old rich man. He knows what's what. Let's just protect him from how terrible the world is. And yeah. life would be better if we could all just be this rich, frail old guy and just let him go die. Yeah. Also, in the 46 version, you know, the uh, Sternwood is is still kind of hale and hearty. I mean, he's crippled, but he's like, he's there. He's He believes in his daughters. Like, he's still kind of mm-hmm. like, they're my daughters. I mean, like, I'm going to protect them as much as I can. I'm not going to let you like, you don't get a sense that he's judging them. Like I've done my own shit in my own day. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. He makes a point of saying that, uh, basically, uh, cause when, when like he, he has a climate controlled greenhouse that he's basically sits in most of the time. It's really hot. And I mean, you got Bogart walks in there and he immediately starts sweating up a fucking storm. He's just drenched in sweat and his shirt and everything. And it's like, okay, I got to stay in here cause I'm so ill that I need this climate. I can't drink anymore. The only fun I can get out of drinking is watch other people drink now. So he's right. like offers Bogart a drink. And he's like, I used to be like you. I used to 
you know, run like a hellraiser around and do stuff and have fun. And I understand that stuff. I'm not distanced or detached from that stuff. And he makes a point about, uh, I don't have the benefit of, uh, uh, Victorian hypocrisy. I, I, I'm not a person who's going to put a blind eye towards how my daughters are. I realize how they are. I still love them and I want the best for them all the same. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there really is this sense of respect and I, and I, I mean, especially when you're talking about, and this is something that means a lot to me personally. And so I'll, you know, but when you're talking about like sexually awakened, sexually aggressive young women, and then you have your, your kind of uh, lead character, basically dismissive and, and outright hostile towards that in 1978, that fucking yeah. means something, you know, like I'm like, like that's a political statement and we shouldn't pretend that that's not. And um, personally, you know, I, I I think the film fails on a lot of different levels, but I think that's well, definitely a yeah. Like, well, that's that's Michael. Film is, I think that all yeah. rests on the shoulder of Michael Winter. Yeah. I mean, because he wrote and directed this, and yeah. it's it's inferior because of his writing. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. I, think. I mean, it's it's adequately directed. I mean, I'm not going to mm-hmm. say it's it's like awful on every single possible level, but it it feels like a, it feels like TV. It feels like you know, it it feels like it might as well be in an, an episode of The Rockford Files or something. Yeah, really. So, you know, yeah. like like it's like you can imagine like Columbo doing this. I mean, and uh, without without the machine gun part at the end, basically. <laughs> you you take the noir elements, the actual shooting style, and this is something I. Uh, I know we're running long. I apologize, but uh, you know, you take, we think noir and we think private eye. Like that's kind of our immediate thought. But noir and what I what we were one of the things I think we were trying to explore and talk about noir is the way that noir is is also just the way things are filmed. This German expressionist kind of idea of aesthetics, and so you take those aesthetics out and you just kind of take this story, The Big Sleep, and you put it in another time and place, and suddenly it feels really generic. It's funny to watch the '46 version which feels more of the moment of, of yeah. today than the 1978 version, which feels like instantly dated. And partly it's because we just kind of like respond to those old aesthetics better than the stuff from the seventies. Mm-hmm. But it's also because the 78 version, like it just loses the music, you know, yeah. the plot of the, st- like uh, reading. I mean, I will say that like, if you're trying to watch this and understand what's going on in the plot, the 78 version is the one you want to watch. Like yeah. it's, it's actually like, because they do flashbacks, they do like winter holds very, your hand, man. Winter is very concerned with making sure you actually know what's going on. Yeah. Even then he loses his way a little bit, but like he, he gives you every, every help he can sort of oh. like drawing you a map, which well, I had to do in making my, yeah. my plot summary, by the way. Well, but, you know, well, I think the 78 version holds your hand so much that it actually makes the point that, yeah, it's actually better that you don't understand the entire plot because when you start to understand the entire plot, it becomes boring. I mean, because I think Winter wants you to not just empathize with Marlowe, he wants you to kind of be this version of Marlowe. Yeah, yeah. And because he wants you to kind of follow this, like, I'm an old fogey. In 78, those film noirs were seen as, this is something my dad watched. This is something that, you know, it's kind of old-fashioned. And so, therefore, we cast an old man to be Marlowe to kind of come in and, and do this, like, kind of old-fashioned dialogue and stuff. And that's just that's just a case of kind of the aesthetics and the ideology kind of go hand-in-hand. Hand. Um, this makes me like The Long Goodbye even more when I see how absolutely doing exactly wrong everything that Altman does right in The Long Goodbye. Um, yeah. I can't say enough good things about the Altman version of The Long Goodbye at this point. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if we necessarily have anything else we need to really 
say about it other than the 46 I, version I is the only one you need to watch it's terrible like don't don't watch it Mitch and, yeah. I, I did i was reminded i'll just i'll just pull out this reference i was reminded of McHugh of uh you know john uh, wayne trying to oh, yeah. uh, trying to action his way through uh trying to trying to use a machine gun and McHugh. yeah and, uh, i just kept i just kept thinking man you're just i mean i don't want to be ageist because i think that mitchum is is not incapable i just I just think he's not Marlowe. I mean, he's he's coasting at this point. He really is. I mean, he's he's I, not the he's not the Mitchum, you know, of of the earlier years before he was kind of blackballed from the system because of his, uh, you know, because he was kind of a not a studio kind of guy. He was kind of yeah. like, "Fuck you guys! I'm gonna smoke pot and do whatever the fuck I want to do." <laughs> I mean, I'd love to see the young Mitchum as a Marlowe. I think that would have been interesting. And yeah. it's just it's just not good, and it's mostly not good because of the script. It's just it's yeah, just it's, bad. I I I I personally blame Winner on this one. I mean, I, I was just watching this. I was like, it's his fucking. I mean, also the fact that he's a not a great director, so he's he's got no rain on any of these actors, and then his writing's just terrible. So it's just like the actors are doing whatever the fuck they want to do. I mean, even Oliver Reed, who is fucking amazing, just who is he in this he, movie? He is uh, Mars in this movie, and he just disappears oh, okay. halfway through the film. Yeah, like it, it doesn't even have the same ending where where Mars is like the. <laughs> the big yeah. culprit or whatever, right? So no, no. I mean, well, I mean, in the the forty six version, changes that ending. Yeah, and yet Mars is like a legitimate presence through the film, like mm-hmm. in the sense of like the threat of it's a, it's a nebulous threat. You don't know who the threat's coming from. But then when you see Mars, it's it's great. And here it's just it's just there's no dramatic tension at all. I mean, I, I found myself like checking the time through yeah. through this version, which I, I really didn't. I was really compelled through the forty six version. Yeah. So if they were going to make a, a version of this today, who do you think should play Marlowe? Who would play Marlowe today? Okay, well, okay, I'm assuming we're going to go with uh, a Marlowe who fits the age range of the actual stories to a better, better just, degree. Just to, I mean, kind of re-envision, like, because we've now watched two versions of this, and I think both, are, I mean, as much as I like the Bogart version, I think both versions kind of lack in some ways. And, I mean, I have the advantage of having read the novel, but, you know, um, I just started thinking, like, who would you cast as Marlowe? And uh, I don't know that I even have an answer, you know? <laughs> I mean, um, I feel like any actor is going to kind of bring what they bring to it, you know? But uh, He's a bit too old. I mean, assuming that age doesn't matter in this, I, I would I would honestly say that I could see myself sticking, like, a George Clooney as a Marlowe, honestly. Oh, yeah. No, I could see that. Um, just, just based on the fact, and this film wasn't good, like, he did um, The Good German... I haven't seen the good German. It, it wasn't like it was a failed experiment, as far as I'm concerned, as a film. But Clooney himself acquitted himself as like a proper sort of noir hero who basically is stumbling through the plot and getting beat up all the time and shit. Um, would you? So would you set it period? Would you set it in the forties or? Oh, I definitely set it period. I, I don't think I'd want to modernize the story. I mean, I think if you did it the way the Long Goodbye was done. And you want to modernize it in that sort of degree, that might work. But Clooney definitely—it's hard to think. Like, there's so many as as weird as kind of you know regressive as it sounds. I kind of want like that sort of leading tough guy kind of character to be doing this, right? I was actually thinking because I saw Deadpool the same like you know like while I was watching these, and I was like Ryan Reynolds. Like, I I wonder like because he's got that quippy kind of quality, he's got that like kind of 
Like, well, he I, does I have that of, banter. Yeah, you could like. I was, I was envisioning uh, him as like kind of the the uh, like the Elliot Gould style Marlowe, like a little bit more like kind of kind of pushing in in that direction a little bit yeah. more. Yeah, like, it's, it's just it's just sad. Like we don't have those sort of characters anymore. We don't have a Bogart. We don't have a Bronson. We don't have a fucking leave Marvin anymore. Like there's really actors don't do that anymore. Like for the most part, you could almost say like I guess maybe leading men actors are more versatile, where you see them mm-hmm. in different kind of different kind of roles but i mean i still really have a lot of i really value like a lee marvin who would like a young lee marvin i could cast as fucking philip marlowe i could also cast him as like mike hammer or something like that as well right like yeah um george clooney is the only one that comes to mind and i'm sure i'll get (laughs) i'm sure i'll get uh criticized for that one um but i mean he's the only audience well, no, he's Go to our the, Facebook page and tell us who you would cast as a modern day Philip Marlowe. Yeah, please do because I want I want to get some like it's just not coming to me. But I think of George Clooney and I think of like as much as he's criticized for some things, he's one of the like only sort of modern examples of like an old style kind of Hollywood actor to some degree that I know that I can immediately ident- identify. So I, I agree, Cl- Clooney would definitely be a kind of Bogart style. Yeah, no, there's no question. Clooney is like the guy to be that, and I think I think Clooney could pull it off even today. I, I I would I would I would not be surprised. I mean, basically, it's it's his same role from Ocean's Eleven. I mean, you know, yeah, really, yeah, to some and degree. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of. I mean, not to not to like diminish that. I mean, I'm just like like it is kind of like you. He's proved that he kind of do this unflappable, cool, and a rumpled suit. He's a guy who could still play forty. Uh. Yeah. I mean, and, I would, I would, I would believe George Clooney today more than Mitchum in '78. I'll say yeah. that for damn sure. Uh, and, and saying that as well, uh, if if I wanted to uh, recast the Lauren Bacall role, I would actually say like Julianne Moore, who can still pull off a, like twenty years younger than that what she actually is right now. Yeah, I mean, and and really like the the age. I mean, God, who would I? Man, that's that's hard trying to cast that role. Uh. Um. I just, hey, I, I just say Jennifer Julian. Connelly. Jennifer, Jennifer Connelly. Jen- oh, Jennifer Connelly. Holy shit! Yeah, and she was uh, from from thinking thinking of Dark City. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Dark City. I'm thinking of Mulholland Falls as well. Yeah, she Mulholland Drive. Or, no, 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 Mulholland, you're right. Mulholland, Mulholland Falls. Falls. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, you're right. I apologize. Yeah, with Nick Nolte. Yeah, she was fucking hot in that. Goddamn, and she's just got this presence. Like she's so underrated, though. Like she's incredibly underrated. I think actually. Uh, I think actually, uh, your your lovely wife and uh, Jack in the uh, Shabogan uh, graffiti when they were Shibugan. doing that Shabogan Shabogan. Oh, I'm gonna get chastised for that too. Uh, <laughs> uh, when they were mentioning her performance in Labyrinth, they were talking about this, how underrated she is yeah. as an actress. Yeah, I uh, I tweeted it. Uh, sorry, I'm completely going off topic. I, I tweeted at uh, Jack and Shana when I was listening to that episode. I said, uh, if you want to do the proper Jennifer Connelly appreciation shabcast, you have to do Requiem for a Dream. That would be the uh, the appropriate, uh, great Jennifer Connelly performance for me. That that would be an excellent one. Yeah, I would agree. Although I like her in a lot of her early stuff too, like even like uh, a Phenomenon, which was like just like this weird uh, giallo horror mashup kind of thing that was pretty good with Donald Pleasance and stuff, but. Uh, we need to do a Jennifer Connelly episode. Is kind of what I'm learning on this. We could do that. We could definitely do that. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I got us completely off track because yeah, I was like, no, let's, right. let's do some casting here, Lee. What would you? Who would you put? You know? Yeah. No, I mean, if anything, this 
this podcast often runs into a side, so that's that's not unexpected. I did not. I thought I copied down the DVD fucking information for the forty six version, but um, apparently I didn't. It's, it's been released multiple times. I mean, you can find a lot of versions that basically just. Um, I don't know if you can necessarily find the forty five version as often, but you can. Fun. I th- there's actually there's a flipper disc that has the 45 and the 46. I don't have that. I have the uh, Turner Classic Movies version, which is the 46 version that has a documentary describing all the scenes that were changed between the two versions. And um, the Turner Classic version, Turner Classic Movies version, comes with the Big Sleep, the Postman Always Rings Twice, Doll M for Murder, and the Maltese Falcon in a four pack that all have fucking special features on them, which is something uh, pretty cool for a fucking two-sided disc with four films on it. And they all have, they're all they all pretty great prints. And I know there's a Blu-ray of the 46 that came out in, I want to say 2014, I believe. So, I this, mean... This would be one I'd buy. I, I would like to see the 45 version at some point, uh, just to... Um, mm-hmm. And I feel bad because I sit here and I talk about films, and I'm like, I, I can't believe I, this is a never... This, I thought I had seen this film, and I've never seen this film. I feel really terrible about it, but I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad I, I immersed myself in the in the big sleep for a week. Whenever you read a book and watch two versions of that book in a week, you just think about this all the time. There's just nothing else going through your <laughs> yeah, brain. Yeah, so, you know. yeah. Um, the 1978 version, if you're actually interested in watching it, uh, there are two uh, DVD releases of it. Uh, there was an Artisan Hope video release in 2002. You probably find it, I, I think it's probably been re-released at some point uh, because Artisan Home Video is now Lionsgate, basically. So you could probably find it in a cheap bin somewhere. And Shout Factory, of all uh, <laughs> companies, released it as well in 2014 as a Region 1 just DVD. So, I mean, thumbs up to Shout Factory. I mean, uh, some some of their selections are pretty obscure, and this is definitely an obscure one for them to uh, pick up. So thank you, thank you, Shout Factor, for making this really, really shitty film available for all for future for generations to come. Really, yeah, yeah. But I, uh, I'm only half joking, but you know, yeah. I mean, it, it. I mean, comparing it to a lot of even the noir of its time, it's pretty shoddy compared to a lot of them. So yeah, uh, Daniel, tell people about your Doctor Who podcast. If you haven't gotten sick of listening to me talk about nonsense yet, you can uh, listen to me talk about a uh, 50-year-old television show called Doctor Who. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, I do this with my wife, who I've mentioned uh, a couple of times in this podcast. And we talk about classic and new series. You can find that. It's called We Spaceman, a Doctor Who Love Story. We are on Facebook, although our Facebook page is not nearly as good as the Facebook page for uh, this podcast. I'm on site. You are. If, uh, you can find us at... Uh, <laughs> oispaceman.lipson.com I think our next episode is going to be covering, oh my god The Twin Dilemma, which is uh, widely called the single worst Doctor Who story of all time Uh, and that'll be the one that'll be up uh, a couple of days after this episode comes out so look forward to that Right on, and of course uh, you listen to the trailer and you can uh, find all the places to find us, hopefully I'll have recorded a new in trailer at this point so uh, if you have not been in sort of uh, beaten over the head enough times about our Facebook page. You'll, you'll hear about it again in the, in the trailer this time around. And, uh, yeah, you can uh, leave us all kinds of comments, questions, and suggestions for stuff you want us to see. And um, I think we're done here. Thank you very much for joining me, Daniel. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Always fun. Cheers.
Yeah. He would spend it on the pony. He would spend it on the girls. By his mother, gin and roses. For her poor old headed curl. And when his wife said, Hey now, what did you get for me? He socked her in the choppers. Such a sweet, sweet guy was he. And her tears flowed like wine. Yes, her tears flowed like wine. She's a real Santa Mado. She's a busted valentine. Knows her mama, but told her that the man is darn a How we love the old race horses, he would bet them every day. One day he caught a winner, and the cabbage wasn't hay. He indulged in fancy spending, ordered rings, cars, and furs. But alas, alack, like a stab in the back, she found out it wasn't hers. And her tears flowed like wine. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For links to the host's other stuff, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can find links to the YouTube version of our podcast, our iTunes page, as well as our Facebook group, which is the best way to get in touch with us and leave feedback. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you!